There are so many incredible renegade women throughout history, and some of them do get quite a lot of airtime. Women like Boudicca, Harriet Tubman, and Amelia Earhart. They get a lot of airtime because they've done incredible things, and they were originally on my list, but there are already other history podcasts and films that have covered them far better than I could in five minutes. Not wanting to reinvent the wheel, today I want to focus on some of the lesser-known women throughout history, who I would say fit into the renegade category pretty well. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. We're going to start today in the 6th century BCE, in Central Asia, in an area which is now modern-day Iran, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Loads of the stands. The 6th century BCE saw Sun Tzu write the art of war, and the first mention of the existence of atoms is found in India by Rishi Kanada. Tamiris was an ancient ruler of the Masagate, a nomadic tribe covering a big-ass area in Central Asia. The tribe were fierce warriors, very proud of their heritage. They fought on horseback using bows and lances, but their favourite weapon was the battle-axe. I'm envisaging a cross between the Mongol tribes of the Mongolian steppes and the Viking hordes of the Nordics. They were pretty fancy, using gold and brass on their weapons. They also had shimmering golden headgear and belts. Not wanting to be selfish, they also kitted their horses out in gold and brass fittings, because who wants a basic-ass horse? No one. They were a close-knit community, and their desire to feel a connection to their ancestors led them to take it a, a bit far. Imagine this. You and your kids and grandkids are sitting around the fire enjoying the birthday cake that's been made for you. You ask what's for dinner. Spoiler alert, it's you. Yes, it seems that the Masagate picked the healthiest elders in their communities to kill and eat near the ends of their lives, having a good old group feast. Cannibalism seems nuts, but this was a way of bonding with one another. Though personally, I'd be happy doing the eating, not so much with the dying. Writing about them in the 5th century BCE... Herodotus, of Greek philosopher fame, describes them as people who live off their herds, fish and milk. They worship the sun and offer horses to him in sacrifice. Apparently the sun is a dude. So back to Tomiris. She became the ruler of the Masagate when her husband died. Having been brought up with an axe in her hand, she took up the mantle wholeheartedly. Apparently though, despite the fact that she was as hard as a nut, she did try to avoid conflict. End of stage left, Cyrus II. So this bloke Cyrus, also known as Cyrus the Great, was the king of Persia. He was knocking about in Persia's land, eyeing up the Masagate territory, and fancied it. He didn't want to try very hard to get it, so he proposed marriage to Tamiris, in an attempt to scare her into avoiding any conflict that might come her way. He was called Cyrus the Great after all, which basically translates to, Cyrus and his pals will fuck you up. If I'm doing my maths right, he'd have been a 70-year-old bloke by this time, proposing marriage to a 40-year-old. 40-year-old Tamiris, though I very much doubt that's why she said no. Anyway, if I hadn't already made it clear, she was like, nah, mate, these lands are ours. Cyrus was pissed, and I don't mean on wine. He declared war on Tamiris and her people as fast as she could say denied. So the river Oxus separated their two territories, and no one likes to get wet before battle, so he started to build a few warships and built two bridges between them. Here's the weird bit. It turns out that the Masagate were not wine drinkers and were basically massive lightweights. Being a cunning bugger, 
Cyrus, upon finding this out, set up a camp in the Masagate territory full of wine and shit soldiers to draw them in. A third of the army, led by Tomiris's son, General Spargapaces, smashed through the camp and killed all of the soldiers. Just a side note here, imagine how crap it must feel for the blokes who are left behind. Like, yeah lads, sorry, you're basically bait now, but thanks for your service, have a good time. Anyway, what is slaughter without the spoils of war? They absolutely demolish their stocks of food and wine, making themselves utterly useless to defend themselves to attack. Well, that's obviously just what happens, because Cyrus comes in like, surprise, enjoy being dead. Spargapaces was taken prisoner, but he committed suicide and can only speculate why. Probably embarrassed, wasn't he? Understandably, Tomiris was fuming and wrote to Cyrus saying, I swear by the sun, the sovereign lord of the Mazagate, bloodthirsty as you are, I will give you your fill of blood. Oof. She led a wave of troops in annihilating Cyrus's army, and Cyrus, the not-so-great, was killed dead in what Herodotus referred to as the fiercest battle of his career in the ancient world. Although there are mixed accounts of what actually happened during their battle, one thing is for sure. Tamiris's people came out victorious. Not only did they kill him, she managed to behead the ruler following his death. She stuffed his decapitated skull into a sack and proudly declared, See now, I fulfil my threat, you have your fill of blood. She became famous for her bravery and especially for the greatest battle she ever fought. This is one of several accounts of Cyrus's death, although this is one of the most regularly repeated ones. Others claimed he died under totally different circumstances, but they sound boring, and I shall not be featuring them here today. Good day! It's only about time to cover Sparta. I don't feel like you need an introduction to Sparta, because they're so well covered in popular culture. So, the incredibly quick lowdown was that they were a city-state in Greece rising around 650 BCE and falling 500 years later in 145 BCE. To the Roman Empire. The renegade from Sparta was Chelidonis, who was a Spartan princess in the 3rd century BCE. She was married to her much older husband, Cleonymus, who was the son of Cleonomes II. Her husband was a bit of a dick and was not allowed to succeed his dad to the throne, as it said he was a tyrannical and violent bloke. When Cleonomes II died, his grandson Aerus took the throne, becoming Aerus I. At the time, Cleonymus didn't really hang out in Sparta and spent most of his time abroad collecting them dollar-dollar bills, being a mercenary. Chelidonis shacked up with Acrotatus while her husband was messing about in foreign territory. Acrotatus was the son of the new king Aerus I. Christ, that was a difficult one, as everyone is either an an, an us, or an is, but I hope you've been able to stay with me. You're with me? Yes, good. Anyway, in 272 BCE, King Aerus was away with his family in Crete, when pissed off and fully rejected Cleonymus attacked his homeland with the help of a Greek king. Obviously, though, I'm not surprised that he was mad. People do incredible things for power, and seeing as Cleonymus was a tyrant already, attacking his hometown was clearly going to be on the cards. Not willing to give up her presumably happy life with Acrotatus and return to a life of misery with her husband, Chelidonis was not having any of this surrendering guff. When the decision was being made to send the women and children of Sparta to safety, Chelidonis unsheathed the sword stating that the women would not leave, and in fact she would lead a contingent of Spartan women into battle. She preferred death than a return to her husband. She kept a rope tied around her neck, ready to commit suicide in case of defeat. Metal. The power couple set defences and the battle began. The young women of Sparta kicked some ass. 
Even though the attackers had a larger force of mercenaries and elephants, yes, battle elephants, the attack did not go well. Sparta received reinforcements and supplies, and that was the end of that little jolly for Cleonymus and his mates. As King Aerus entered the city, he heard the stories of Sparta's Amazons, but would find them nowhere in the open. They deemed it too unseemly to meet their men dressed as warriors and covered in blood, so they actually went home to get changed. I reckon if I'd just been this metal, I'd be standing at the gates like Maximus does in Gladiator, shouting, Are you not entertained? I can't get over how great this is. These women didn't just sit and wait to be overtaken, hoping that the blokes would do enough to save them. They obviously had had enough training to be like, pull up your knickers, girls, we're going to fuck up some dickheads. Why am I only just learning about these Spartan women now? Chelidonis and Acrotatus had a beb, who later ruled as Aerys II, king of Sparta. The kingdom of Kush was part of Nubia in northeastern Africa, covering a large area spanning from modern-day Egypt in the north down to Sudan in the south. Nubia in the 1st century BCE was a major trading centre for goods coming from the Mediterranean, Central Africa and the Arabian Desert. The ancient Nubians were a sophisticated and cosmopolitan culture, as many trading hubs are, and they traded in gold, ivory, ebony and pelts. Three Kushite kingdoms dominated Nubia for 3,000 years, and perhaps one of its most famous rulers was Queen Amenarines. She came from a long line of warrior women and took the throne in 40 BCE. So the Roman Empire, being greedy buttholes, were very into the idea of taxing Nubians living in Egypt. Remember that at the time the Roman Empire ruled Egypt. But Amenarines was not having any of this at all. She raised an army against the Romans and waged a successful campaign, going as far as to cut the head off a bronze statue featuring the Emperor Augustus and having it buried under the foot of a Cushite ruler at the entrance of a temple. This is so every Cushite could walk over the head of the Roman Emperor in a pretty big flex from the Queen. When I read this, I imagined a massive head the size of a car being dragged along, but alas, it was only 45 centimetres high. But still, it would have been a nightmare to cut without modern power tools. I wouldn't want to be the poor sod expected to cut it off. I get tired just waving at people. Queen Amenorines lost an eye in a battle and became known to the Romans as one-eyed Candace. Candace meaning Queen Mother. This injury did not stop the Queen and she waged a successful war lasting five years. The Roman Empire at this time had the most powerful army in the world. But that didn't bother Amenorines. She sent them a bundle of fancy-ass golden arrows along with an envoy with the following note. This gift is from the Candace. If you want peace, this is a token of her warmth and friendship. If you want war, keep the arrows, because you're going to need them. She's so metal, it's insane. A carving from Cush shows her feeding captives to her lions, which has a strong Emperor Caligula vibe. She secured Cush's borders and even managed to get the Romans to sign a treaty saying that they won't tax them and that they can remain an independent state. Much information about the Kingdom of Kush remains a mystery as no one has been able to translate their hieroglyphs, which makes them all the more intriguing. The year is 40 CE. You might remember from the execution episode when Roman Emperor Caligula planned to invade Britain, but instead he managed to declare war upon the sea, taking shells as spoils of war. Well, that happened in 40 CE. But we're not going to talk about the Romans now, we're going to hang out in Vietnam and meet the Trung sisters. At the time, northern Vietnam was under Chinese rule of the Han Dynasty. Under their rule, the Hans imposed Chinese culture, 
which as usual they believe was more civilised and superior to the Vietnamese. This didn't go down particularly well with them, who obviously had their own culture and beliefs. This area of northern Vietnam was split into districts, I'm picturing the Hunger Games here, and each district had what essentially was a puppet leader, which of course ultimately had to answer to the Chinese. An uprising started to bubble under the surface, and in 40 CE the Trung sisters decided they'd had just about enough of their shit. Trung Trak and Trung Ni were born into a wealthy family, and their dad was a district general in rural northern Vietnam, and despite Chinese rule during this time, life wasn't too bad. The leaders stood up to the Chinese whenever they could, allowing the Vietnamese people to resume life as they once knew it. Because of this, the two girls grew up studying literature and were trained in martial arts, and generally didn't really have too bad of a time. They were in line to succeed their father in being district leaders. Unfortunately, with time, the repressive Chinese regime became worse. The Viet- Vietnamese began having a bad time under their harsh rule. They were suppressed, exploited, and those uncooperative were imprisoned or executed. The Chinese also decided to do away with equality between the sexes by replacing the matriarchal family system with China's strict patriarchal system. They also decided to throw in some harsh taxes for good measure. Trung Trak, the eldest sister's husband, had been assassinated by a Chinese general for plotting to overthrow them. Not about the quiet grieving widow life, Trung Trak took up his mantle and decided to lead the rebellion herself, declaring, Foremost, I will avenge my country. Second, I will restore the Hung lineage. Third, I will avenge the death of my husband. Lastly, I vow that these goals will be accomplished. In 39 CE, she, with her sister Trung Ni and other members of the aristocracy, marched on Lian Lao, forcing the Chinese commander to flee for his life. Within a year, the sisters and their allies held 65 strongholds across northern Vietnam. They gathered an army of 80,000 people, most of whom were women, including their dear old mum, and they set out to drive the Chinese away from their lands, riding on a herd of elephants. Elephants again. The Trung sisters proclaimed themselves queens of an independent state extending from southern China to the present site of Hue, which is about half the size of Vietnam, so not a small queendom at all. Their determination and strong leadership qualities are cited by scholars of Southeast Asian culture as testimony to the respective position and freedom of women in Vietnamese society as compared with the male-dominated societies of China and India. Sadly, the Trung sisters' revolutionary army was basically untrained and had no supplies. So a few years later, by the time 43 CE arrives, their time as queens came to an end and they were beaten at the Battle of Hat Mon. Some sources say they were killed in the battle, but others say that unable to face defeat, they committed suicide by drowning themselves. Despite this, the rebellion against the Chinese, led by the two sisters, changed the fate of Vietnam forever. It allowed the country to regain independence, even if it was for a short moment in their thousand-year history of Chinese domination, and later, the French and the Americans. Some even feel that if the sisters had not resisted the Chinese when they did, there would be no Vietnamese nation today. As you can imagine, the Trung sisters became the stuff of legends. Poems, stories and plays have all been inspired by them, and they are a source of resilience, courage and hope for women who live more restricted lives. Districts, streets, temples and schools are named after the sisters, and many monuments of them riding on elephants have been erected in their honour. Their story serves as an inspiration to the people of Vietnam, and for nearly 2,000 years, their legacy has remained firmly embedded in the culture and national identity of Vietnam. The story of the Trung sisters' bravery and sacrifice is one that will be forever told with pride.
We're not leaving Vietnam, but we are zooming forward about 200 years to 248 CE. Vietnam is still under the rule of the Han Dynasty, boo, and continues to be repressed. Zhu Ti Chin, or Lady True, was yet another rebellion leader that you should know about. True was born in a small village in Vietnam and was orphaned as a toddler and was left alone with her brother. So, unlike the Trung sisters, she came from nothing, so it almost makes her next moves more impressive, because as we all know, it's much harder to get somewhere when you come from nothing than when you have a step up from wealth. Anyway, she was sick of her people being repressed and dominated by big foreign power and set up a base and trained thousands of rebels to fight against the repressors. Apparently, her brother tried to dissuade her from this undoubtedly dangerous commitment to which she replied, I will not resign myself to the lot of women who bow their heads and become concubines. I wish to ride the tempest, tame the waves, kill the sharks. I have no desire to take abuse. Sharks are friends, but let's give her the benefit of the doubt and assume that she was using a metaphor. True led over 30 battles before she was 21. She was basically still a child. I was messing about at uni in my late teens, being too scared to ring the dentist myself and book an appointment. And here is Lady True, absolutely smashing the Chinese army to pieces. What an absolute inspiration of a woman. True was a big fan of yellow robes. Yellow is my favourite colour, so I like her even more. And she gave herself the nickname, the Lady General clad in golden robes, like a boss. She must have been quite a sight. According to legend, she was over nine feet tall and rode into battle on, you guessed it, an elephant. Perhaps a slight exaggeration as the average height of a Vietnamese woman is just over five foot, but because of her valour, you can understand where the legend came from. The Chinese were afraid of her piercing gaze and said they'd rather fight a tiger than face her in battle. I read in quite a few articles about her that she was the Vietnamese Jeanne d'Arc, but for me, she needs no comparison to another woman and should be as well known in her own right. Sadly, like the Trung sisters, it all came to a very sad end. After 30 battles, the rebels were running low on supplies. They simply didn't have enough reserves to fight a long war. But you can bet your ass China did. Lady True was slain in battle in 248 CE, at the age of just 23. Hundreds of years later, in 939 CE, the Vietnamese finally won their bloody war against the Chinese and gained independence for over a thousand years. Lady True is still celebrated as a heroine in modern Vietnam. A national holiday honours her bravery and many streets are named after her in Vietnamese cities. This episode has been a bit self-indulgent because this is the sort of stuff I want to learn about and I hope you've enjoyed listening. We celebrate women's achievements today when we have what I suppose is as close to equality as we've ever achieved – But we're not hearing about women today, we're hearing about women from a few thousand years ago who were subject to prejudices like a hundred times what we have now, so that makes them all the more inspiring and impressive. To have the balls, so to speak, to enter a man's military world and stand up for what you believe in is just incredible. In part two of Renegade Women Across the Ages, we'll be hearing about renegades from Syria, Mongolia, England and Greece. But don't worry, I'll be covering more in part three. Maybe part four. I don't know yet, we'll just have to see. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. I've run out of reviews, I've only got one more left. So if you've got Apple Podcasts, be a babe and write something nice, will you? The last five-star review, here we go! Zadik23 says, Who imagined that history of shoes could be so interesting? 
Across the Ages is a very well-produced podcast, and Natalie is such a marvellous narrator. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, as ever, for your kind words. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Across the Ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into renegade women across the ages, part two. 